0: Well, there were two brothers who uh, were probably like most brothers. We can imagine they had, at least in the beginning, a a decent relationship with each other. Uh, But perhaps, as with a lot of brothers and with a lot of siblings in general, maybe there was an element of of sibling rivalry that was present. As the two brothers grew up, they had different occupations. One brother was was a sheepherder. He worked the flocks in the fields. The other brother was a farmer. He was a man of the soil, a man of the earth, and he tilled the ground and he planted and he reaped a harvest. And so they begin to grow up maybe in distinct directions. Well, as you read the text of Genesis chapter four, we come to this moment in the life of both of these brothers when they decide uh, to offer a sacrifice to God. And and we're told as they offer their sacrifice that Abel, who's the, the herder, works the flocks, he brings some of the fat portions Uh, of his flock, and he offers it as a sacrifice to God. And in the text of Genesis 4 said that God looked favorably on Abel's sacrifice. Cain, we're told, brings some of the offering uh, of of the fruit of the land, and he offers it to God, but God does not look favorably on Cain's sacrifice. And as you read the story, it says that Cain walks away, his face downcast. You can just imagine him staring at the ground, walking away in sort of a, a crushed way. And then it's maybe at that moment that this anger that's been building in Cain's life begins to seethe with a new level of, 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 of animosity for his brother. And God warns Cain. He says, Cain, listen. He says, if you do what's right, won't I'll, I'll accept your sacrifice. It's not you. It's, it's the way that you, you offered your sacrifice. If you do what's right, I'll accept it too. And then God continues, and he says, Cain, listen, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Don't let it. Don't let it consume you. Well, Cain apparently doesn't heed that warning because he, he walks out of, of that meeting with God, and, and he sees his brother Abel, and, and he says, hey, uh, let's take a walk over to this field over here. I've got something I'd like to show you. And as you read Genesis 4, it says that they walk out into this field, and it says there Cain attacked and killed his brother, murdering him in cold blood. And God comes to Cain, and he asks this uh, question He says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain, he responds with what I think is a rather cold, calloused response as he tries to hide his guilt. And, and we know, right, that God doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know where, Cain, where Abel is, right? God knows he's been murdered, so he asks this with sort of a, a way of, of judging Cain's action. He says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, he says, it's it's not my day to watch him. what makes you think I'm responsible for it? I'm not his babysitter. I don't know where he's at. And God says, Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God knows what Cain did. And right away from the very beginning moments of Scripture, I think we see two key themes that are going to help us understand our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. Right away in in Genesis chapter four, we see that that sin is a really big deal. God goes out of his way to warn Cain and he says, Cain, listen, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to consume you, to take over your life. Sin's a big deal for God. So this should raise other questions. Why is it a big deal? What is sin? How does it affect our life? The the second key theme that emerges here is is found, I think, in the question that, that Cain asks of God. Am I my brother's keeper? In, in other words, does, does this problem of sin on the one hand, is, is there any sort of, of corporate responsibility, uh, th- th- do those two play into each other at all? Are we responsible for our brothers and sisters? Uh, I'm, I'm not your babysitter. You're not my babysitter. Are, are, are we our brother's keepers? And I think these are two incredibly important questions that begin to create an important framework for First Corinthians chapter 5. We've been walking through the book of Corinthians as we've been asking this question, what does it look like and what does it mean to to be the body of Jesus Christ? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is going to raise two very important questions that emerge as problems in the church at Corinth. Now in the church of Corinth, the first problem is that there is blatant sin that's right there in the community that nobody's addressing. So on the one hand, we have the problem of sin that's being accepted in the church, and on the other hand, we have the problem of a broken community culture in the church. Sin is there, and we'll walk through this in a second, and the church uh, and the leadership of the church are not even going to do anything about it. Two problems that Paul's address addresses in 1 Corinthians 5, sin and a broken community culture that allows sin to flourish. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 1, Paul begins by saying this. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and as one who's present in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but a sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Whew. That's a heavy text, isn't it? What's Paul getting at here? He he begins by telling the Corinthian church, he says, listen, he says, there's a kind of sexual immorality in the church at Corinth that he says, even the pagans do not tolerate. Now, we could skip right over that and, and, and not see the significance there, but we have to understand that the Greco-Roman culture that Paul was functioning in was, was incredibly sexually immoral. There, there was a, a politician from Athens by the name of Apollodarius who, he, he said this quote, and he doesn't say this ashamedly. He says this like, yeah, no big deal. He says, in our culture, we have mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, and we have wives to bear us legitimate sons that's not healthy, right? That's not how it's supposed to function. But, but in that culture, Apollodarius, he doesn't even say that like, oh, we shouldn't tell people. He says, no, this is, this is how we function. Pagan prostitution in the pagan temples was incredibly common and as long as you went discreetly so as not to dishonor your wife, probably no one was gonna say anything. So this is a culture where sexual immorality is like, it's what you do, it's the thing. And Paul goes, listen, in, in this sexually immoral culture, the church of Corinth, goes, you guys have a kind of sexual sin that even the pagans who are okay with a lot of stuff, they look at you and they go, whoa, now that's messed up. And Paul says, listen, this is, this is a big deal. And so on, on the one hand, there is this problem of blatant sin that, that's just open in the Corinthian church. But, and on the other hand, there's this problem of a broken church culture that says, you know what, we're really not going to, we're not going to talk about that. That, that's their decision. We're, we're going to let them do their thing. And no one is calling this guy to task. They're letting him live in a broken relationship that since the times of the Old Testament has been forbidden. And Paul says, this, this, this isn't how the church is meant to function. And so as Paul begins to address these two issues, sin on the one hand and a broken church culture that is okay with sin on the other, Paul begins to get at what it looks like and what it means to be the body of Christ and how to do community life in a way that's healthy and redemptive. So let, let's look at this, this first issue that Paul addresses, and there's the problem of sin. Sin. Now, I feel like sin is one of those words that you hear tossed around a lot of times at the church, but sometimes we assume that everybody knows what it means, so we don't talk about it. Sin, I think, is, is this attitude of rebellion in which one lives uh, independently or rebels against God's planned purpose and design for humanity, and in which we live independently of God's direction, and thus we miss the mark of right living. Scripture speaks of living a righteous life, and when we talk scripturally about righteousness, to live righteously is to live rightly aligned with the truth of how God's Word calls us to live. Now, sin is this attitude of rebellion that says, I'm going to turn my life away from God. I'm going to live independently of His plan, purpose, and direction. I'm going to do life my own way, how I see fit. I I, I don't really care what Scripture has to speak into my life. I'm going to do it my own way. And we see from the very foundations of creation that there are serious consequences and serious problems to this sin. There there are grave dangers to living in sin because we, we live against the grain of how we were created to live as we rebel against God's plan, purpose, direction, and design for us. So why is sin a big deal? Let's look at some of the dangers. I think one of the core dangers of sin is that it results in a broken relationship with God himself. So prior to Cain and Abel, we have the example of their parents, Adam and Eve, who were told as they were put in the Garden of Eden, hey, you have the run of the place, just don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the course of time, Adam and Eve are tempted and they give in and they they eat of that tree and they rebel against God's direction for their life. And as they rebel against him, there's this moment where God is walking in their midst and Adam and Eve are in a place of hiding. They're hoping, "I, I hope that God... It doesn't, doesn't pass by here. They've oriented their life away from him. In the book of Jonah, I think there, there's a, a very good description of this danger. Jonah chapter 2, as Jonah is praying from the belly of a fish, Jonah says this. He says, those who pursue idols turn away from God's love. That, that's a powerful image. He says, if you pursue things other than God to try to fill this space in your life, to try to find meaning and fulfillment, he says, what you do is you orient your life away from God's love for you. No, sin results in a broken relationship, but catch what Jonah says in chapter 2. It's not that God turns away from us, it's that we orient our lives away from him, turning our back on God, saying, I've got this. I think I'll take it from here, God. I can figure it out on my own. But here's the problem, is that from the very beginning, we were designed to be in an intimate relationship with God himself. When Jesus comes and he begins to kick off his ministry, he says, listen, I've come, Jesus says, that you might have the abundance of life. And so true abundant life, joyful, rich, deep living is found only in Jesus because our soul from the very core of who we are is designed to be in relationship with God. When we break that, we are not living as we were created to live. So scripturally, broadly, we see that sin is dangerous because it results in a ruptured, broken relationship with God himself. The second danger, I think, that's present in sin is this, is that sin tends to be pervasive. Listen to what Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He tells the church at Corinth, he says, "'Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough?' So imagine I've got this bowl of dough, right? And I decide, okay, I only want to leaven half the loaf. So I'll just pour yeast on this side so that this will rise, but the other side, it won't get affected, right? Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. If you, if you put yeast in the dough, he says, it's going to work its way throughout. It'll leaven the whole batch of dough. And Paul is telling the church of Corinth, he says, listen, sin works in a similar way. He says, just like yeast will spread throughout or pervade the whole batch of dough. He says, sin works the same way. It will spread throughout your entire life. Here's what I think we, we do sometimes is, is we think... That we can have this sort of, this little sin over here that we keep in sort of the dark recesses of our life. There's this private place that we don't really tell anyone about, and we have this sort of thing that we do in that place in our life, and we think, well, it doesn't affect you. It's just my thing, and, and it won't really hurt anyone. There, there's no problem there, right? I'll have this sin, this place of rebellion against God where I'm, I'm transgressing how God has called us to live and I'll just let this stay in the dark recesses of my life and it won't hurt anyone. He says, no, that's not how sin works. Sin, just like yeast, will spread throughout. It, this, this sin that we keep hidden in the dark recesses and places of our life, it will begin to spread throughout affecting your life personally and affecting your life corporately in the relationships that you have. So Paul here, let's, let's use an example. Paul here is talking about sexual immorality. Let's start there to talk about how sin spreads throughout one's life. Think, think of uh, the sin of, of lust, right? Lust is one of those things. It's, it's really easy for lust to sort of take place in the dark interiors of the recesses of our life without anyone noticing Right, Lust is that moment when we see someone who's attractive, and we begin to have sexual thoughts about them, and we sort of entertain them and let them grow. Lust is uh, engaging with explicit uh, pornog- pornographic material, or it's reading explicit novels that describe in great detail sexual encounters, and we think, I can have this thing, and no one will really know, and, and, and it'll be Okay. The problem is that lust works the exact opposite of how God has designed and created for us to function sexually, and that has ramifications in every relationship that we have. So as, as we look biblically at the idea of sex within the confines of God's Word, we see that, that sex is to be the culmination of this holistic, this holistic intimacy that we're building. So sex is about the emotional, relational, uh, spiritual intimacy that a husband and wife are building together. The culmination of that intimacy is the physical act of sex, which becomes a metaphor of two people giving themselves wholly and unashamedly to one another, right? In in Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve were both naked in front of each other, fully disclosed, and they feel no shame. It's this place where you're fully accepted as you fully offer yourself one to another. It's, It's a beautiful picture and depiction of what marriage is to be and how sex is supposed to work. Here's the problem with lust Lust is not about a reciprocal relationship of two people offering themselves. Lust is about this moment where we look at another, desire them, have sexual fantasies about them, and we use a person as an object for my own sexual gratification. Do you see how it does violence to the personhood, to the humanity of the other? Because I use them for myself. There was no mutual interchange. There was no relationship. There was no mutual submission. There was no covenant promise. There was a, I will use you to get what I want. And here, here, here's the problem with lust is that the longer we let that build and grow, we train ourselves to objectify people and to use people for our means and our ends. And that problem, left to take root, it will corrode relationships in a marriage level, and it will corrode relationships on a corporate level as we begin to break down in how we do community. And and we could apply this with all sorts of other things, right? Paul is addressing sexual sin in particular, so that's an easy one. But we could talk about gluttony, right? We could talk about how it's easy sometimes to abuse food, to to sort of uh, process our emotions. We've had a hard day, so let's have a whole pizza and drink a liter of Coke. And gluttony is one of those sins that as a church we kind of feel okay with, right? Sex is bad, but gluttony is okay. But what if we use that as an abusive substance to, to sort of process our emotions at the end of a rough day so we don't have to engage them in community, process them through with someone or Lift them up to God in prayer. Or we could talk about um, unresolved anger and unforgiveness towards a person that we let calcify deep down inside. Any, any sin you pick, the reality is that sin, like yeast, will spread throughout one's life. The longer it goes unaddressed, the more far reaching the effects. Sin, like yeast, Paul says, is pervasive, it will spread throughout. Finally, I think for Paul, we see that, that sin is destructive. Notice what Paul says again in verse four and five. He says, when you're assembled as a community and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Paul says, hand this man, this is the man who's been having a a sexual encounter with his father's wife. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, so what in in the world is Paul talking about? Is he imagining that there's this moment where he say, okay, Satan, this person is yours, no, that's, that's not what Paul's talking about. For Paul, this idea of handing this man over to Satan is tied back to the reality that this is a man living in blatant sin who's unteachable. He's not sorry. He, he doesn't feel any sort of drive to change his lifestyle. He's fine sleeping with his father's wife. He's not going to listen to truth. And so what Paul says is, he says, listen, you've got to ask this person to step outside of the protective, encouraging confines of Christian community. And he basically says, release them to the world, to Satan's domain. Let them live as worldly a lifestyle as they want. And Paul says, our hope is that they will experience the full destructive force of sin and be brought to a place of brokenness. And we hope that as they hit rock bottom, that they become open to God's grace. But for Paul, the reality is there that sin is incredibly destructive. And I think sin is destructive both personally and corporately as it spread throughout one's life or spreads throughout one's community. So for Paul, this is, this is a big deal. And the church of Corinth, they're, they're fine to just let this go unaddressed. And Paul's looking at this man's life who's living in rebellion to God's plan, purpose, and direction, and he's saying this guy is headed for a, a, a tragic outcome. His family will be torn apart. The community he's a part of is gonna be affected and you as the church, he's telling Corinth, he says, you guys are okay to, to just look right over it. So for Paul, he's concerned about sin because it's, it breaks a relationship with God, it, it spreads throughout one's life and it, and it causes destruction wherever it goes. But now Paul turns and he begins to address this other problem of a broken church culture that was willing to just look over sin and leave it unaddressed. So the church at Corinth, they ask this question, am I my brother's keeper? And the church at Corinth says, no, they they can make their own decision, but I'm not responsible for them. And Paul goes, no, 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 listen, Paul goes, that's not how body life works. Paul would answer that question and say, yes, you are your brother and your sister's keeper. As we do community life together, we are called to a sense of corporate responsibility to help each other in, in, in our faith journey. This is what body life looks like. And I think our temptation is to ask the question like Cain, am I my brother or sister's keeper? No, I'm not responsible. But Paul says, no, 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 there is a deep sense of corporate responsibility that we have to take seriously as a community. So let's look at some observations for Paul about healthy community. One of the first things that we see for Paul is that community matters. Notice verse 4 that we read already. Paul says, when you were assembled, and I am with you in spirit, notice what he says. He says, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. If you flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? I mean, th- this is profound what Paul is saying. Paul says, listen, when you're gathered physically as the body of Christ, he says, and the power of Jesus is present. Going back to verse 3, he says, when you are gathered as the body of Christ, he says, do you know that y'all the only way to translate this is with the southern y'all. We don't have the corporate you, right? Paul says, y'all, all y'all are the temple of God. This, when we are gathered as the body of Christ, physically, bodies, seeing one another, worshiping together, Paul says, this is the place where God dwells. And, and so sometimes as a pastor, I get this question, can't, can't I encounter God in my tree stand just like in church? Can't In a moment of solitude, can't I encounter God just like I do in church? Can I tell you the answer according to Paul is no. I think you can have a spiritual experience in your tree stand, and I pray you do. I hope and pray that you have a spiritual encounter in a point of solitude. But for Paul, this is the place where the power and the presence of God dwells in an especially tangible way that is not available outside of the gathered body of Christ. There is a very real sense that for Paul, he says, it all comes back to this. This moment where as a gathered body, we encounter the power of Jesus present in our midst. Do we believe that? That the power of Jesus is present in our midst. For Paul, community matters. The other thing I think Paul um, observed about community or, or encourages them to is, is to have the hard conversations. In chapter 12, or verse 12, excuse me, of chapter 5, Paul says some hard things he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's talking about non-believers. But he says this. He says, are you, church, not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel this wicked person from among you. Whew, anybody else want to preach on the passage? I'll hand it over and you can talk about it. What? what? Paul, what do you say? Because Jesus tells us, judge not lest you be judged. You know, don't go walk around with a plank in your own eye and, and judge the brother who's got a speck of sawdust in their own. So Jesus tells us not to judge. But now Paul is saying, no, you should judge those instances. What, what do we do? Wh- which one do we, do we live by? I think when you look at what Jesus is saying in the Gospels when he says, judge not lest you be judged, don't, don't worry about the speck of sawdust in your own eye, and your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own, Jesus is getting at two core things. I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying, don't be legalistic and walk around and nitpick all your brothers and sisters. He's, he's speaking in the context of law and obedience to the law. The second thing that Jesus is addressing is hypocrisy. Don't walk around as someone living in blatant sin, pointing out the little flaws in people around you. So, if this man who is sleeping with his father's wife, if he were to come up to me and say, Pastor, uh, I, I really felt like you treated uh, your wife Lauren disrespectfully the other day. That, that's inappropriate. I'm going to say, dude, you're sleeping with your father's wife. Don't give me marriage relational advice, right? So, that man who's living in blatant sin, he shouldn't go around trying to speak truth into the lives of other people. It's inappropriate. He needs to deal with that first. But I think often we take this teaching about judgment and we say, you know what? Who am I to judge? I, you know, this, this person, their life doesn't seem like it aligns with the character of Jesus or with the truth of God's word, and they claim to be a believer, but I'm not going to judge. And, and I think in a little way, we're really great at living out what our society calls moral individualism, right? I'm responsible for my choices. I'll decide what's right and wrong, and they can too. Paul goes, Uh uh-uh. He says, you're your brother. You're your sister's keeper. He says, have the hard conversations. So when Paul talks about judging people inside the church, if we take this one scripture and say, here's Paul's theology of church, we might walk around and start to judge everybody. But if we look at the whole of Paul's writing, we could look at something like Ephesians 5.21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And Paul imagines Christian community as this place where there is mutual submission. And so I am submitted to you, and you are submitted to me, where I speak into your life and I give you room and the humility allow you to speak into my life. But for Paul, he says, there's no way around this that, that we have to have these hard conversations. And, and, and think of it this way because if I were to tell you without any context, hey, you should judge people, you'd go, well, that's pretty unloving. But but think about it this way in context with what Paul's saying. He told the Corinthian church if this man is unrepentant, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the spiritual or of the sin nature in him. That's a hard thing, right? This man is going to feel the full destructive weight of his sin in a way that is going to break his life. Now, imagine imagine you're on a road and this road is it's in South Dakota so the speed limit's 80 miles an hour but there's a blind turn in this road, right? And you come around this corner and you don't have time to react, but there's a bridge that's gone. You you happen to come upon this bridge, you, you manage to stop in time, but you see down the road a car filled with family and friends, That's bare, they're doing 85 because they're not spiritual, so they're exceeding the speed limit. You, you know they're not gonna be able to stop, right? Now, now, if you know that car of family, friends, and loved ones, if you know that they're gonna make that that turn and they're going to go off a destructive end, what would you do? You would do whatever it took to stop them. You would jump in the road. You would, you would wave your hands. You would be yelling, stop, stop. You're, you're headed for something you can't see, but it's destructive, right? That's what Paul is saying as he says, listen, judge one another. He says, use judgment, be discerning in your interactions with one another. Have the hard conversations to say, hey, your life doesn't align with God's word and you're headed towards a destructive end. In in, in that sense, to have the hard conversations, to be judging in a discerning, loving way is the most loving response that we can have. To tell someone, listen, what you're headed towards is not good. All right, let me hit two more real quick. Um, I'm just going to gloss over this one because I'm running out on time. But the reality in community is that what gets celebrated gets replicated. And, And here... Every community you're a part of has a culture. Your family has a culture. And when we talk about community culture, what we mean is your family has ways of relating and things that you value as a family. And culture has to be cultivated. That means you have to intentionally uproot unhealthy habits and attitudes from family life, from church life. You have to intentionally sow healthy habits, healthy ways of thinking, healthy values in family life. The problem at the church at Corinth is they they have this unhealthy sin attitude that's grown up, that sin is celebrated. The problem is the things that you celebrate, the people around you as a leader, they will tend to replicate. Because what we celebrate, we hold up as something to be praised. What are you celebrating in the culture of your family? What are we celebrating in our culture as a church? All right, I'm going to hit the next one. Uh, Finally, I think Paul calls us to draw boundaries and to be discerning. Paul gives this hard teaching. He says... In verse 11, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral. He says, don't even eat with such people. Whoa, okay, so is, is Paul calling us to just outright shun this person? What's he saying? If you were to, to do a word study and that word to associate with, it means to be mixed up together with. In Tim Keller, I like his take on this passage. He's, uh, he says, to, to associate with means to be mixed up together with in an intimate relationship. And so what Paul is saying is he says, listen, don't let your life be indiscriminately, undiscerningly mixed up together with a fellow brother or sister who is not open to God's truth and God's teaching as they live in blatant sin and rebellion. Paul says this person who's sleeping with his father's wife he says you've got to be discerning. Don't let your life be mixed up together with them in the same way. When Paul says, don't even eat with such a person, part of what we have to understand is that in the first century culture, to share a meal with someone in their home usually was an act of incredibly intimate friendship and relationship. And so Paul is saying, listen, this brother who's, who's in this place of, 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 of blatant sin and sexual immorality, he says, be discerning. Don't let them just speak into your life. They're in a place where they are not living according to the truth. It's okay to draw boundaries. It's okay to not have your life be intimately mixed up with theirs. So why, why does all this matter for Paul? Why, why address the problem of sin in, in what I think is some level strong language? Why go to such great lengths to tell the people of Corinth, listen, you are your brother, you are your sister's keeper. Have the hard conversations. Why does Paul go to this, such great length? I think because what Paul wants the people at Corinth to understand is that they need to live true to their identity as the people of God. And, and, and notice what Paul says in, uh, in verse 6. He says, Your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch? Get rid of the old yeast so that you can be new. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Now, in, there was a time in Israel's history where they were in slavery to Egypt, and they cried out to God. They're living in oppression. They're out to God to be free. And as God answered their prayer, he began to work on the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who was keeping them in slavery and oppression, but his heart was hard. And so God sent a series of, of plagues on Egypt. One of those was, was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And as the angel of death made its way through Egypt, God told the people of Israel, he said, if you want your firstborn to be spared, sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on your doorpost. After a a, a series of time, the people of Israel were set free from slavery in Egypt and they were in such a hurry to leave Egypt that they didn't have time to let their bread rise. So as they fled Egypt, they ate flat unleavened bread. Now, as a good Jew, every year you would celebrate the feast of the Passover. And it was this time when they collectively, as a, as a body, as, as a Jewish people, they celebrated this moment when the angel of death passed over their families. And they ate unleavened bread uh, right around the season of Passover as a reminder of God bringing them from slavery and oppression to a place of freedom. And, and as part of the celebration of Passover, they would take the unleavened bread that they had used for most of, of the year, They couldn't go to the store and just buy a packet of yeast, so they would allow dough to ferment and use that fermented dough to cause leaven and yeast to happen. Now, the problem with that is that over time, that fermentation can become dangerous. So at the feast of the Passover, they would throw out the old bread and they would eat unleavened bread. And at the end of that time, they would allow some to ferment and have leaven again, and they would eat this new bread. So let, let's bring this metaphor into today. What Paul is telling them is, he says, listen, throw out the old life. Th- did you catch that? He says, throw out the old way of living that's this leavened with malice and wickedness, with rebellion, with a heart that's oriented away from God. He says, throw that out. He says, instead, be the new bread that you are. Instead, he says, live into your new identity. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. His blood has been marked on the doorpost of our life. We have crossed over from oppression to sin, from slavery to sin, to a place of freedom, to a place of life. Paul says, live authentically and truthfully into that new reality. The church at Corinth, they're so content to live in the old way of life. This man is sexually immoral. And we won't say anything. Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's who you were. But he says, that's not who you are anymore. So how do we begin to respond? There's three things I want to leave us with as we think about what it is to live truthfully and authentically who we are in Christ. I think one of the first ways we can respond is to confess sin. Is there a place in your life where you're harboring this secret thing and maybe no one even really knows and you're, you're keeping it sort of in this dark, private place in your life, but it's growing and it's festering? 1 John 1.9, I think it says 19 in your study guide. That's wrong. It should be 1.9. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. So let us confess before God. Let us open up to God these places where we have rebelled against His plan and purpose and where we are living in sin. If you were to look up James chapter 5 verse 16 that I mentioned there, it talks about confessing our sin one to another. And it's, we don't do this so that someone else can forgive our sin. Only God can forgive sin. But James talks about confessing our sin one to another to mature believers. Because when you confess one to another, what it does is it opens up our life to responding in the second way uh, to embrace community and accountability we often think, okay, I can confess before God and I can go on and still continue to do my spiritual journey on my own terms individually. But I think we have to be a people who embrace community and accountability as we have people who come alongside us and encourage us and challenge us to live according to God's truth and God's word. And finally, I want to leave us with this. Let us live out our new identity as God's people. Are there old patterns, old habits, old ways of living that are still indicative of a place of rebellion towards God? Are there things that we need to step out of as we step into a life of freedom and holistic living in Jesus? What are those places? The band is going to lead us in in another song of worship. And I want us to use this as a moment of reflection to think about your life. Is there a place where you've been harboring something that you need to bring out before God and say, Father, would you forgive me? Would you lead me? towards freedom from this place and use this as a spiritual moment of confession in your life.